Lord, we thank you that we are able to talk to you right here, right now. You're not just someone from a history book 2,000 years ago. We can talk to you right here, right now. Lord, as we learn more about you, as we learn more about what your resurrection has done for us, what your resurrection is doing for us right now, as well as in the past, as well as in the future. Lord, may our eyes and ears be opened, our hearts be opened. May we all go away from here with something fresh, a fresh revelation from you that we can act upon and glorify you yet more. Help us this morning as we open your word. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Who loves a good story with a twist? Agatha Christie. Amy loves her Mrs. Marple stories. Miss Marple. The Sixth Sense and Planet of the Apes, you love those, those films, and there's a big twist comes at the end, it comes, almost comes out of nowhere, and then you realise the clues were there all along, weren't they? Well, that's what's been happening here. Jesus had taught it repeatedly. He said, I'm going to be killed, and then God will raise me from the dead. He told it repeatedly to the disciples, to them, straight over the top of their heads. So when he died, it was the end of the world for them. He told them, but it was the end of the world for them. So to them, there was a great twist in the tale. Perhaps we can see it coming as we read the Gospels. It's easier now, isn't it? But for those guys, finally, they get to see what it was all about. The resurrection is so fundamental to our faith that unfortunately, sometimes it can get pushed to one side a little bit in the light of the cross, which is, the cross is vital, but they should never be separated. Christ's death on the cross and Christ raising from the dead 30-something hours later should never, never be separated. When Jesus on the cross, his very final dying breath, he shouted out, it is finished. We can sometimes see that and think it was all done on the cross. Oh, and then there was an extra little prologue where he, epilogue, prologue, whichever the bit is, comes at the end, where he rises from the dead. When he said it is finished on the cross, he was including the resurrection. When we preach the cross, we should always be it directly or indirectly, be preaching the resurrection. And when we preach the resurrection, we should always be directly or indirectly pre-preaching the cross. Because Paul says, when he writes to the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, in chapter 15, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is our faith. What's the point? The resurrection is utterly fundamental, so much so, that when you then find out what the disciples did after Jesus had ascended back to the Father's side a few weeks later, when you see the birth of the church in Jerusalem and then beyond, the great big sermons in the book of Acts, every single one focuses on the resurrection. And then God raised him from the dead. You who killed him, and then God raised him from the dead. And then God raised him from the dead. That quote keeps coming up and over and over again in the big sermons in the book of Acts. The one time it doesn't is Stephen's preach, which gets interrupted by a vision of the living Lord Jesus. The resurrection features every single time. It's fundamental to all of what you believe. So this morning, we're going to look at how the resurrection affects us here and now. Before we do, let's just ask the question. Let's consider the question that so many people do ask. First of all, before we move on, did Jesus really rise from the dead? People out in the world ask that question. We need to consider it. See, by the time Matthew wrote this gospel... AD 55, AD 60, nearly 30 years after the event. There are as many as, quotes vary, but as many as 50,000 Christians in Jerusalem when Matthew wrote this gospel. Now, again, the population of Jerusalem at the time varies wildly, but that can be as few as 10% of the city 
were Christian, or as many as 25%. In our town, I struggle to find much more than 1% genuine, believing, saved Christians in this town. One, one and a half percent if you're lucky. You imagine this town with 10 times as many, or 25 times as many. Imagine the difference it would make. That's what was going on at Jerusalem at the time when Matthew wrote this, this account. Something must have happened. Something must have happened. And yet people try and excuse it. People try and come up with conspiracy, conspiracy theories. We see the authorities paying off the guards to tell a, tell a lie, to dispel this supposed truth that they'd heard about, trying to cover it up. People come up with excuses that the disciples stole the body. Well, if they stole the body, they went to some gruesome deaths for that lie. Some were hung, some were crucified, some were impaled, some were sawn in two. That's the one that gets me. If you've robbed a grave, would you be willing to go to your own for that lie? I'd be the first to blab. And yet they didn't, because they had met with the living Lord Jesus. Something had happened. The disciples could not have stolen the body because of what happened later. How they lived their lives and how they died. Another excuse is that the authorities stole the body. That's why the tomb was empty. They took the body. Why would they do that? <laughs> they paid off. They're recorded as paying off the guards to say the opposite. The disciples took the body. And if they had stolen the body, all they had to do was put it on display in a gas cabinet like Karl Marx and let everyone fire past him to see that Jesus really was dead and he's not like all these weirdo Christians are talking about. The authorities didn't steal the body. Another excuse is that this, this was mass hallucinations. It's very, very, very rare for two people to share the same hallucination. And the highest number ever recorded to share a hallucination, and even then it's a bit spurious, is 12. There are over 500 eyewitnesses recorded in Scripture for having seen the living, breathing, walking, talking, eating Lord Jesus Christ. Each of the Gospels was written by another author, and Luke went around interviewing all these eyewitnesses for his Gospel. These people were still... If you want to find out what's true about this supposed Jesus who's raised from the dead, you're going to ask someone who's met him. I met him. So did my cousin. There were eyewitnesses alive at the time. Hallucinations is not a reason for people having seen Jesus. Something else happened. And just one more briefly is the excuse that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. After all he went through, lashings, flesh ripped from his back, blood pouring down his face, hung on a cross for hours and hours and hours to asphyxiation, or supposed, if they think he didn't die, to near asphyxiation, because your, your arms pull up your torso and crush your chest and you can't breathe. The Romans were experts in crucifixion. They were crucifix experts, if you like. And they used to walk around and see who died and who hasn't. They knew what to look for. And if you hadn't died, and you were trying to hold yourself up with your legs to take the weight off your torso so you could still breathe, they'd break your legs, so you couldn't do it anymore. And eventually you'd hang there, you'd asphyxiate, and you'd die. They knew what to look for. They came up to Jesus, they didn't break his legs. Because they knew what to look for, he was dead. But then, just to make sure, they shoved a spear through his side, and it's described as blood and water coming out. What that means is, as the pressure in the torso builds up and you asphyxiate, it also builds pressure around not just the lungs, but around the heart. And there's a sac around the heart, 
and the pressure on that causes the blood and the plasma within the blood to separate. So when he describes as blood and water coming out, it's the two components, the plasma and the other blood components coming out separately because of the pressure that's built up. Jesus was dead. If he'd swooned, fainted on the cross, he'd have collapsed anyway and asphyxiated and died anyway. But again, if you still want to follow that story, if he's fainted on the cross, hasn't actually died, been through all that, he wouldn't be getting up 30-something hours later, walking around talking with his brethren, cooking them breakfast, which is recorded. He'd be in ITU. Jesus didn't die, absolute lie. Something happened. Jesus genuinely was raised from the dead. That a prominent figure lived and was killed in history, it's not that significant. Gandhi, Mother Teresa, it happens. Prophet Muhammad, if you like, it's not that significant. But that Jesus declared who he he said he was and then proved it by being raised from the dead. If he didn't stay dead, we've got to respond. Every single one of us. We need to allow the resurrection to sink in. Look at the two ladies we see turning up at the tomb. They're grieving. They've lost their Lord. Peter, you read in other accounts at the time, is gutted. This is the Sunday morning. On the Thursday night, he'd let his Lord down big time. Massively. And he was gutted. And there was no way he could make it up to his Lord or say sorry because his Lord was dead. Thomas, hearing all that, what do you mean he's alive? It's ridiculous. Preposterous. I ain't going to believe that unless I'm going to stick my finger right in his hole. Right, rubbish. Thomas wouldn't believe it unless he actually saw him, met him and stuck his fingers in the scars. And yet these people live very different lives after they met the living Lord Jesus. Their lives are transformed by the resurrection. And there's an expectation for the same to happen for us as well. There's one more account in Luke at the time, because obviously Matthew doesn't touch on every story, but between the Gospels we find out all, as many of the stories as we're able to, as we need to, of what happened that day and the following days. On that day, in Luke 24, we read about two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. It's a little place just seven miles from Jerusalem. These guys had heard what had happened. They've heard everybody gossiping about the fact that Jesus is alive. He's not dead. The tomb's empty and we've seen him. They've heard this because in Luke 24, 14, they are, it said to, they're discussing all these things that had happened. They've heard all about it. And they meet with Jesus and they don't recognise him straight away because he's in his renewed resurrection body. It's the same body but transformed in a new way. It still bears the scars, but it's a new body of power that can walk through doors, that can flit around the country... They don't recognise him straight away until he opens their eyes to who he is. And they're telling him all that they'd heard. Apparently this Jesus, he's alive. If you've heard that your supposedly dead Lord is actually alive and in Jerusalem, where would you be going? Jerusalem. Where are they going? Emmaus. We can hear the truth and we can still fail to respond in light of it. These were believers but they're walking the wrong way. doesn't mean they stopped becoming believers, but the truth hadn't sunk in, the reality hadn't sunk in. We need to understand what the resurrection has done for us. Let that truth, let that reality sink in. And that's what we're going to do this morning. There's a, a Monty Python sketch. You get a bunch of Jewish rebels, rah, rah, rah against the Romans. And they go, what have the Romans done for us? 
Nothing. One of them goes, better sanitation. Well, oh, oh yeah, yeah, but besides better sanitation, what have the Romans ever done for us? Medicine? Well, besides better sanitation and medicine, what have the Romans ever done for us? Education? And the, the list goes on. They get better, this huge, great list about public works and healthcare and, and so on. Roads, peace. All right, besides all that, what have the Romans ever done for us? And so the sketch goes on. We're going to look at eight ways of what the resurrection has done for us. I'm going to have to be brief. Each one's a sermon, to be honest. But I just want to help, help you guys understand the resurrection affects us here and now. As much as it's great, ah, oh, Jesus is alive because he raised again, so we can talk to him and we'll see him again one day and he's on our side. That's all true, but there's so much more going on in the resurrection that we can fail to realise. We need to let the reality sink in because it affects us here and now. Our understanding of our identity in him. So firstly, first of eight. Some of these overlap a little bit and it's not necessarily an exhaustive list either, to be honest. But these are eight for this morning that I hope will help. Firstly, the resurrection proves he's God's son. Romans chapter 1. Paul writes to the Roman Christians and right at the very beginning of his letter, Romans chapter 1, Paul says this. Let's look at verse 4. It's Christ Jesus, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. It proved he was who he said he was all along. It validates his identity. The message paraphrases it as his, it's his unique identity as, as the Son of God was shown by the Spirit when Jesus was raised from the dead. You want validation? There it is. He is exactly who he said he was. He didn't stay dead. He rose again in victory over death to prove he is the Son of God. This man who divides history, and he does, he is safe to trust because he is God. And he is alive. He is who he says he was. He's safe to trust. So the resurrection proves he's God's son. Some of these I'll spend more time on for other reasons. You'll find out in a minute. Some of these we'll whiz through. Firstly, the resurrection proves he's God's son. Secondly, the resurrection proves scripture. There's plenty of prophecies before. And Jesus himself has said, I'm going to be raised again. It proves it. Psalm 16 is a, what's known as a messianic Psalm, in as much as some of it is written as the voice of the Messiah, which Peter, for this particular one, Peter helps reveal later on, helps us understand it in the light of Christ. But this is written thousand, a thousand years beforehand. And there's the voice of the Messiah saying, Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay, or your holy one see decay. That was written a thousand years beforehand. Fulfilled a thousand years later. The resurrection proves Scripture. Prove scripture. Scripture is totally reliable. This is what Jesus did to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He, he walks them through scripture. Do you see that prophecy? What about that prophecy? What about that prophecy? Do you get it yet? And finally their eyes are open and they get, it's him. And exactly what said would happen to the Messiah, he's done it. It's him. It proves scripture. It's totally reliable. Even when seasons come and go, times change, Culture changes. It feels like culture isn't changing or it's heading in one direction. Before you know it, overnight, seemingly, it goes the other way. In the words of the songwriter, the word is unshakable truth in the notion of change. The word is totally reliable. It proves itself. 
over and over and over and over again. The resurrection proves scripture. That's just one example, there's many, but we don't have time to look at them all. Thirdly, the resurrection secures our new birth in him, our new life in him. When Peter speaks, writes to the dispersed Christians in his first letter, 1 Peter 1 and verse 3, he says, In his great mercy, he, this is the Father, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's through Christ's resurrection that we are given this new birth. There is a direct connection between Jesus' resurrection and our new life in him. If he'd stayed dead, if he couldn't beat death, how can we be sure we get eternal life if he can't do it? It secures our new life. If he was raised, we can be sure of an eternity secured with him. His new life secures ours. Hallelujah. That's the first three. Some of these are going to slow down a little bit for now. Number four, the resurrection ensures our not guilty verdict. Don't worry about if you're not getting a chance to scribble all these down. These will be on the notes on the website tonight or tomorrow. The resurrection, fourthly, ensures our not guilty verdict. This is what Dan was reading from Romans earlier about our justification. Justification means that we are declared, not just declared or considered as not guilty, we are despite what we've done, not guilty. That's what justification means. Romans 4, verse 25, Paul says this. He says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Through his resurrection, we get that not guilty verdict. See, at the cross... Our old life, our sin, our stains, our crimes against God, our selfishness, our desires. We have a choice to follow him, to bless him or to not. Each time we don't is another sin. (coughs) Letting the perfect God down. We all do it, we're all human. But at the cross, that's paid for when you put your faith in him and what he did. Washed away. The resurrection secures that not guilty verdict. Christ took the guilty verdict on our behalf. We, as his children, God's children, are now declared not guilty. Now this is important, I want you to hear this. Because God, in the act of Christ's resurrection, was saying to him, I approve of what you've done. You did enough. Which is why Jesus on the cross, still waiting for the, in, in the light of the resurrection, was able to say, it's finished. He doesn't need to die again. Once and for all. He didn't need to stay dead. Although we still sin as Christians, we do. Although we are still fighting the flesh, if you like, in this world, you are still considered, you've got to hear this, you are considered not guilty forever. It's not an on-off switch. You're not guilty. Oh, you sinned again. I'm waiting. Sorry, you're you're sorry? You're not going to do it? You're going to do it again? Okay. Not guilty. Oh, you sinned again. Guilty. Pardon? I'm waiting. Asking for forgiveness? Okay, not guilty. It's not an on-off switch. You're not guilty, not guilty, guilty, not guilty. When you're his, from that moment on, you are not guilty forever. Because Christ paid at the cross, paid for not just our past sins, but our future sins as well. 
You are declared not guilty now. Despite how, if you're feeling rubbish about what you've done during this week and you haven't kept a short account with God, you haven't talked to him about it, you're still declared not guilty. Conscience is a good thing. Listen to your conscience. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Try not to sin. When you do sin, speak to your father. But if you feel rubbish because of what you've done, actually know this fact, you're still considered not guilty. It's really important. It makes a massive, massive difference. Your father still sees you. Whatever's happened this week, today, last month, and you kept it to yourself and haven't spoken to God about it, the father still sees you dressed in Christ's perfect clothing if you're one of his. Forever. You're washed, you're not guilty. Forever. That doesn't change. So the resurrection ensures our not guilty verdict. Fifthly, the resurrection assures our future resurrection. Just as it fulfills scripture, it thus proves the unfulfilled promises will come. 1 Corinthians 15 again, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, he says, Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, which just means those who have died. He was the first fruits of that. We, like Jesus, will be raised after death. And at the end of times, when he comes again, we'll be given these bodies renewed, resurrection bodies, just as his body was the same but different. It had the scars, but it was a new resurrection body as well. We will receive these bodies renewed, transformed, incorruptible, eternal, and we will live with him on an incorruptible, eternal, resurrected earth. This planet will be resurrected itself as well. It will be a new earth. The Old Testament is full of promises that God makes. The New Testament is full of those promises coming true. Some of those haven't come true now, but you read the book of Revelation, it fulfills all of them. His resurrection assures our future resurrection. Tom Wright, the theologian, he says, Jesus' resurrection is not an absurd event within the world, but it's the symbol and the starting point on the new world and the renewed creation. Because that happened, it's definitely on the way. And we can rest assured in that. This doesn't mean we rest on our laurels. Put our feet up. I'm alright Jack, I'm saved now for eternity. I can put up with this flipping planet for a little bit longer and eventually it's all over. We've got a job to do now. We must never, ever, ever forget that. We'll look at that a little bit later. This is not an excuse to put our feet up. But this is a secure and certain hope that we can rest on whatever it is we're going through. Does that make sense? It's a big difference. Number six. The resurrection confirms future judgment. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, it says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The resurrection proves it will come. The riots we've seen over recent weeks in this country, they weren't an opportunity to protest. They are an excuse for anarchy. But where did that come from? That didn't happen overnight. That's been bubbling underneath the surface for a very, very long time. It's still bubbling under the surface now. We think we're okay and this nation's getting a little bit worse, but at least it'll never be like some of those Eastern European countries where it all kicks off or somewhere in Africa where it all... Well, we just proved it. 
allegedly overnight, anarchy in our cities. That didn't happen overnight. That was there all along. Just the opportunity arose for it to happen. Mike Betts, the guy who looks after our, our family of churches in Kent and Suffolk and Northern Europe, at our church on the farm, our gathering of our family of churches together in East Kent, he was speaking about how this country is on a tipping point, is what he believes. It's like a knife edge. And it can fall into chaos or fall into king, God's kingdom breaking out and revival breaking out. He's bang on the money. What happened? Those riots proved it. Just takes that little, off it goes. Thank God it's back again. Nothing to stop it falling that way again. This nation's on a tipping point. Why? Because generally there is a lack there is a lack of understanding of a higher and good higher power that we are meant to be accountable to. It's all about me, 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 I, 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 my rights, the government always taking these taxes, they're cutting my benefits, it's all that kind of stuff. Me, 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 I, 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 rather than there is a good God who gave everything for me, I'm going to give him everything back. Even when earthly terms it looks like I'm being stitched up. He's in charge. I want to get revenge on such and such who hurt me. Leave that to God. Lack of forgiveness poisons you, not them. Don't try and get revenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not yours. It's mine. Future judgment will come and the resurrection proves that will happen. Because Jesus rose again and ascended on high. It sets the scene for the final day when the Father goes, enough's enough and Christ returns. He will judge. If you love him and you know him, you will be safe. If you don't love him and know him, you won't be. And we all need to respond to that. But the resurrection guarantees there will be a future judgment. Number seven. The resurrection guarantees Jesus is our go-between. I've used that word. The Bible uses words like intermediary and priest. I just hope that word just helps explain it a little bit more. In Hebrews 7, verse 23 onwards, the writer says this. Now there have been many of those priests, the priests are the go-betweens, that could enter God's presence on specific times after cleaning rituals on behalf of the people. You can just wander into the Holy of Holies on your lunch break and have a chat with God. Didn't work like that. He's a perfect God, and our sin almost is a false field, and we just keep bouncing off this false field. We can't get anywhere near the Holy God. He won't let us anywhere near Him with our selfishness and our sin, our stains. But He did allow a priest on certain occasions and after certain ceremony to enter His presence and make sacrifices on behalf of the people. There have been many of those priests, says the writers of the Hebrews, since death prevented them from continuing in office. One dies, you get another one. One dies, they don't live forever, do they? You get another one. One dies, you get another one. So it's a succession of them. Because death prevented them from continuing. But because Jesus lives forever, because he was raised again, he has a permanent priesthood. He is our permanent intermediary, our permanent go-between. Therefore, the writer continues, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He died once and for all. He rose again once and for all. He's always in God's presence on our behalf now as our great high priest. Hallelujah. We have open access to the Father through Christ. 
And he's the perfect bridge between God and man. He was fully God and fully man. The only person who can bridge that gap between a perfect God and an imperfect man. And he did that. Right now, not only are you declared not guilty forever, but our Lord Jesus is talking to our good Father right now on our behalf, interceding for us, even when you feel unworthy, because he thinks you are worthy through what he's done for you. Not through what you've done, through what he's done. (coughs) Big difference. Go talk to him. And the last one. The resurrection gives power for Christian living. This is the one that people like to hear. Oh, this is the bit I've been waiting for. Because it's all very well giving me all those seven points, Steve, but I still struggle with X. I still fail in Y. I still can't get rid of Z. Let's read Romans chapter 6. Verse 5 onwards. Paul's writing to the uh, Roman Christians and he's saying this. Romans 6 verse 5. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. See, they're inextricably linked. You can't separate them. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. We have died with him. In the death on the cross, when you give your life to Christ, your old life has died and you are dead to sin. We don't feel like it sometimes, do we? But the truth is actually, you are dead to sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Death and resurrection together again. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And then verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's not about we can do this. If I try harder, if I try hard enough, I can live the life that I dream of living for him. It's not about we can do this. It's about he has done this. Again, it's a massive, massive difference. And we have to get that mindset topsy-turvy in our head. I must try harder, I must try harder. It's like Betty was saying earlier. It's about giving up striving and resting on the fact that he's done it all. That he's in charge. He's done the hard work. Resting on his work, not ours. Makes a massive difference. When we sin, those moments aren't simply when we've let him down because we're rubbish. There's a bit of that going on, I guess. But the truth is actually, more profoundly, when we sin, they're moments when we've forgotten or we've chosen to ignore the reality, the truth, that he'll always provide a way out. He's promised it. We just don't always look hard enough, do we? Because we're enjoying the sin. Sin's enjoyable. That's the part of the problem, isn't it? We like it. The guaranteed truth, we need to remember this, that he will always provide a way out, 
that he beat sin once and for all at the cross for us. And he beat death once and for all in his resurrection for us. It's not we can do this. It's he has done this. Living in the light of that changes everything. He's done it. Living above sin is about letting those truths sink in, not about having a better willpower than other people. I wish I like them, they've got better willpower than me, it's just the way I'm wired. That's a lie. Living in the light of what he's done changes everything. You're not alone, because he's there to help us as well. He hasn't done it for you and then run away to heaven. Let him get on with it now. He's given us his Holy Spirit to help us. Third member of the Holy Trinity, the three-part Godhead. There's Father, Son and Holy Spirit. God in three persons. The Son is at the Father's right hand, praying on our behalf, talking to the Father on our behalf, the good Father on our behalf right now. Holy Spirit, he is here amongst us. Right now, he's in me. If you belong to him, he's in you as well. He's here to help us. That's why Christ ascended to heaven. He said, I need to ascend to heaven so I can give you my Holy Spirit. And he needs to be raised from the dead so he could ascend to heaven to do that. It's all part of the same thing. The Holy Spirit is here with us. Which is why, in those final words of Matthew 28, he can tell us this. He says, therefore, Matthew 28 verse 18, it's what we call the Great Commission, it's just his like rousing send-off. Guys, get what I've done, go and do the great stuff. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Bring more into the family. It's not just about you. I've got a job for you. I don't want to just do it for you. I want you to be involved in this. This is an adventure. You're securing me forever. Go and get some more. They're out there. I've got their names. Go and find them. Find out who they are. I've done the hard work. But he says, I'm not going to leave you to go and I'll be back here if you need me. The very final line, what does he say? And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He couldn't say that if he stayed dead. He's alive now. His Holy Spirit is with us now on his behalf while he's praying to the Father. He's available. He's available. Campbell Morgan, a preacher and evangelist, long time ago, he used to read the Bible every week to two elderly women. And one time, they read these final words of Matthew 28. And he said to these ladies, isn't that a wonderful promise? He'll be with us to the very end of the age. Isn't that a wonderful promise? And one of the ladies, she caught him short. She said, excuse me, that's not a promise. That's a certainty. It's true. He's here by his Holy Spirit. We are not alone We've got an exciting job to do. Because the problem is, as we finish, those eight reasons I've given, ways in which the resurrection affects us, what the resurrection has done for us, we can squander those treasures as his children. They're not simply creature comforts, benefits of being in the family, perks of being in the clique. Because if we live like that, we're squandering it. Because otherwise we can act like spoilt rich kids with a great indoor pool, heated indoor pool, overstocked fridge, Xboxes, Sky Sports, 
parent taxi service, and a bloated trust fund. If we don't live in the light of that, that's what we're doing. Spoilt rich kids. But what it does mean, letting this reality sink in, means we can live like privileged children of the king, members of the royal family, with a job to do. Not just any job. We're going to find out who his other kids are and drawing them in. Letting people come to know Christ as their Lord and Saviour who died on the cross for them once and for all. Who rose to life again once and for all. We must not squander these treasures that we have been given far beyond anything we could ever deserve or have imagined. We need to be careful. We've got responsibility, haven't we? Either Jesus walked out of an empty tomb in a real body, or he didn't. And every human who's ever lived on this planet and ever will, will find out either way what they believe. Either Jesus walked out of that tomb in a real body, or he didn't. If he didn't, might as well pack up and go home and do whatever floats your boat right now. What's the point of being here? Nothing. If he did... We have an obligation to consciously give him who gave us everything, give him everything back. You won't lose out. You'll never lose out. Or you can choose to reject it and end up regretting it for the rest of eternity. Every one of us in that room, we've got that decision to make. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, Don't ignore that question. Come and find me afterwards. I'd love to pray with you. John or David, we'd love to pray with you. This is an earth-shattering truth. I'm not surprised there was an earthquake when the tomb rolled to one side. That was not just an earth-shattering moment, that was a history-shattering moment. It affects everything. Please, if you don't know Jesus, come and find me afterwards. I'd love to talk with you more. If you do know Jesus but you feel you struggle to live in the light of these truths, which we can all do at at times. I'm going to pray in a minute. And just quietly with our eyes closed, if you want to put your hand up, I won't be looking either. But putting your hand up is just saying, God, help me get these truths. Help them to make a difference in my life. Let me live upon the foundation stone of your resurrection. I'm going to pray, and if you want to respond, just between you and God and no one else is looking, but putting your arm up is an act, isn't it? It's a decision. Then do so. And I say amen, you can put your hand down before I open my eyes if you like, it's not a problem. But please, if you want to know more, don't walk out of here without speaking to me, please. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ. So much more than a man of history, you're the son of God who proved himself. You proved yourself to be the son of God by raising from the dead. You proved the scripture that your Holy Spirit inspired man to write. You proved it by being raised from the dead. You secured a new life for those of us that love you, either now or we'll do in the future through your resurrection. 
you have guaranteed an eternal not guilty verdict over us through your resurrection. Unchanging. You have assured our future resurrection, our future hope. It's guaranteed because of your resurrection. You've guaranteed there will be a future judgment and we don't need to worry about people who've upset us or hurt us or let us down because you'll sort that out. We don't need to. And we can be guaranteed that we that love you are safe in your arms on that final day because of your resurrection. We thank you that you are our permanent go-between, our eternal priest who died once and for all but raised again to eternal life once and for all, that you are always available on our behalf in God's presence, that we can come to you, we can speak directly to the Father because of your resurrection. And we thank you that you haven't just left us to it, but through your Holy Spirit we are not alone and we can live a life that glorifies you increasingly and increasingly and increasingly because of your resurrection. Lord, those of us in this room that want to know more of this truth, we raise our hands. We say, God, by your Holy Spirit, by your power, may you, over the next few hours, days, weeks, months and years, increase a fuller and a deeper, not just an understanding or a knowledge, but a reality that sinks in, grips us, takes hold of us and leads us further into the adventures in your kingdom because of these truths of what your resurrection means for us. Lord, teach us, show us, transform us, and let us see Herm Bay turned inside out for you. By us, your people, being turned inside out for you. Lord, we love you. We thank you that that tomb is empty, that we can talk to you right now. Lord, let us live in the light of that fact. In your name we pray. Amen.